Episode 6, The Next Greatest Generation On June 18, 1940, at 3.49pm Greenwich Mean Time, Winston Churchill, barely six weeks in office as Britain's Prime Minister, rose in the House of Commons and gave a 36-minute speech at a moment of national peril. Let us brace ourselves to our duties and so bear ourselves that if the British Empire and its Commonwealth last for a thousand years, men will still say this was their finest hour. On August 20th, 1940, at 3.52 p.m. Greenwich Mean Time, Prime Minister Churchill rose in the House of Commons and gave another speech. The gratitude of every home in our island, in our empire, and indeed throughout the world, goes out to the British airmen who, undaunted by odds, unwearied in their constant challenge and mortal danger, are turning the tide of the world war by their prowess and by their devotion. Never in the field of human conflict was so much owed by so many to so few. Welcome to the PDR Podcast. everybody and thank you for joining us on this very special episode it feels like every episode is special these days of the PR podcast today we are being joined by dr ruth mcclellan nugent she is my former u.s history professor from my undergrad days and is also a brilliant woman but you should know who she is she is an associate professor in the department of history at Sorry, the name of this university has changed several times over the years. So now it's Augusta University. Her primary research interest is gender and 20th century popular culture in Canada, Britain, and the US, though she is broadly interested in popular culture. Her current project, working with a team from the University of South Carolina, is on developing a video game titled Desperate Fishwives, which will function as a teaching tool to engage students in the world of a 17th century village and its social problems. Some of the courses she has taught include U.S. History to 1877, which is the one I took, Modern right. World History, Witchcraft Trials and Magic Belief in the Atlantic World, History of Women, U.S. and Canada, Gender and Family History, Historical Research Methods, Piracy, I took the wrong class, man, I'm just saying, and American Social and Intellectual History. She supervises undergraduate honor theses work as well. Beyond the classroom, she plans to continue scholarship in the area of games, gender, and moral panic. Dr. McClellan Nugent's recent or apparently semi-recent publications include Wonder Woman Against the Nazis, Gendering Villainy in DC Comics, and Monsters in the Mirror, Nazism in Post-War Popular Culture, The Amazon Mystique, Subverting Cold War Domesticity in Wonder Woman 1945 to 1963, Encoded, Comics in the Era of the Cold War, and Sisterhood is Too Powerful for Television, Amazon Matriarchy in Wonder Woman, in Bound by Love, Families in American Television, 1953 to 2010. So in case you guys can't tell, she maybe likes Wonder Woman a little bit. <laughs> it's a fun topic. <laughs> uh, you were interested in Wonder Woman before the movie came out. 
Oh yeah, yeah, this was this is a project I've been working on since about 2009. So for about 10 years now, I've been working a lot on gender and popular culture in comic books. But I've also worked with, you know, film and in other genres, theater and yeah, popular culture. Yeah. So you are sort of my my multidisciplinary hero in that you don't stick in one tiny lane of things. You expand across everything. Well, wow, Taylor Winkleman's multidisciplinary hero. I'm going to add that to my bio. <laughs> Well, you are, in fact, I'm going to segue very, very smoothly, as I always do. You are, in fact, branching into the current outbreak and dealing with the current pandemic. This is a moment when maybe historians do have something useful to offer. You and I were talking earlier about people wanting to feel useful in a crisis. And, um, you know, people who know something about previous pandemics or the behavior of people in crises or wartime emergencies... I'd like to think that we can offer some perspective, at least. Yeah. So the reason I reached out to you for this is because you wrote a letter to the editor of the Augusta Chronicle. And I would like to note that most people, when they're pulling historic parallels to the current crisis, they are going straight back to the Spanish flu epidemic or pandemic of 1918 pretty appropriately because it was a pandemic and it scared everybody and it killed a lot of people, but you didn't go there. You <laughs> went somewhere else entirely. That's true. That's true. I went to World War II because I think the Spanish flu pandemic is, of course, an excellent reference for us and we should be looking at that. But in terms of mustering a national emergency response, World War II offers us some very clear models particularly in terms of messaging and how to motivate people to change their behaviors and to bring them together in a message of civic responsibility. So I think that's something that maybe we can think about. Plus, World War II is more familiar in our popular culture to some extent. And I think that at least some Americans would like to identify themselves with, with that generation and their response to crisis. Well, certainly. I was reading, I think it was a New York Times article. Now, now that I've mentioned, I'm going to have to dig it up to try and put it in the show notes. I may or may not be able to find it, but I'm going to try. And it feels like this was years ago, but just like two months ago, right before the Oscars, I was reading a New York Times article that was talking about its Oscar predictions and all the things that you need to do to win an Oscar. And it basically said, if you want to win Best Picture, make a movie about World War II. <laughs> I mean, that makes sense. I've often said if I wanted to get students to fill a class, I should put the term World War II in the title somewhere. <laughs> but it, I mean, it's a, it's a topic of continued fascination, and it's not just about battlefield stories. The more that social historians and cultural historians have, you know, dug into this period, it's complex, it's interesting. There are so many different stories of different kinds of people. So yeah, I think there's a lot for us to relate to. And it's a period that it feels a bit more modern than some of the older historic periods, uh, even though it is clearly quite separate from us. So, I mean, there's a lot of reasons to feel not nostalgia, because it's really a terrible time in many ways, but a sense of connection to the crisis response. I think a lot of us tend to trace our family history to our connections to World War II, in part because all of us have that. So for me, my grandfather served in the Navy in World War II. I have friends whose grandfathers or parents or great-grandfathers served in various capacities. And I think for me, when I look at film, there are two movies that I think of when it comes to World War II. And I actually looked this up. There's 1,300 World War II movies. 
according to Wikipedia, which I know as a historian, you're really excited that I use that as a source. <laughs> you're, not being, you're not being graded on this research. <laughs> <laughs> um, and only about 130 World War I movies, which would support your assertion that World War II is more fascinating to us. But there are two heroes for me of film that I think of when I think of World War II. And one is one that I think everybody feels the same way about, which is Indiana Jones. Okay. Because he punched Nazis. Yeah, punching Nazis is good. And it was, you know, I mean, in, in every way and, in, and on every continent, it feels like he punched a Nazi. And the other one is Rick from Casablanca. Mm-hmm. Mm -hmm. It's interesting you bring up Rick from Casablanca, Taylor, because Casablanca is a film from the period, and it's a film that we don't often think of as having any kind of propaganda messages in it, but it really does, and it's a good example of the way that American movie studios uh, try to weave in messages about the war into every film, and a film as wonderful as Casablanca, it's an excellent film, but you know, it also does a very good job of showing who is the enemy. Why do why do we oppose them? What's what's bad about Nazis? Because that's one of the harder things for us to understand is that people didn't necessarily understand the nature of the threat. Why am I so concerned about these German Nazis? What makes them different? And you know, the film does a, a fantastic job of, in a pretty economical amount of time showing you the nature of the threat, showing you something about the allied people who are uh, trying to oppose them, and taking this image of Rick, right? Rick is this American, right? Very American type. And he's neutral. He's always neutral, which reflects a lot of the pre-Pearl Harbor attitudes of Americans. And then, of course, he is swayed over by his own experiences. And I, I even love the fact that Casablanca doesn't have to show all the allies as perfect. You know, um, Captain Renault is a pretty flawed character. <laughs> he is amazing. <laughs> but that there's a role for all of these different kinds of people in the fight. So, you know, on the one hand, it's an enjoyable story. It's a good storyline. But on the other hand, there's a lot of interesting messages in there that come out of that period. And I'd like to stand Casablanca a little bit because, for one thing, it's considered widely to be the best movie of all time. Certainly on everybody's top 10 list, it's on mine. And most people don't really think about it as World War II. Most people think about it as this unrequited or, or failed love story or, you know, just the image of watching Ilsa fly away. But a lot of people, I think, when they first see it, don't think about the situation that Ilsa finds herself in. And, and you just spoil the movie for everybody, Taylor? Sorry, guys. If you've not seen Casablanca, spoiler alert, it's been out for a while. Uh, just go see it. I really haven't spoiled anything by telling you the ending. Guys, if you haven't heard the line, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. I think you have not been paying attention to popular culture in the last 50 years, nor have you ever seen Looney Tunes. Right. Um, which I think is a, just a measure of how impactful this movie has been. But when we think about it and when we think about looking at it, and you sent me an article that I will post on the show notes, looking at Casablanca specifically as World War II propaganda. Um, I, I would like to maybe take a moment and define propaganda. Okay. And in, in the way that you are, are using the term and thinking about it, because it has a pretty negative connotation in modern times. And, probably throughout history. 
So propaganda is originally just a kind of a neutral word that comes out of the notion related to, we could also use the terms public relations and advertising, that you're trying to persuade people of something. If we look at the period we're talking about, there are essentially two forms of propaganda or two kinds of propaganda that are important. The first we would call attitudinal propaganda in which we attempt to sway someone's attitude. The second, after you sway their attitude, is operational, as you attempt to uh, affect their behavior. Now, if we think about it, we see this every day. Why do we have the notion that McDonald's is delicious? Where did we get that idea? Well, that's a good example of attitudinal propaganda, you know, and uh, it attempts to associate the product. So let's, let's put it in terms of sales, because I think that feels a bit more neutral. You know, attempts to associate the product with something you already value. So good times at Mickey D's. We're going to show these ads of people hanging out with their friends and family, right? And hopefully, I mean, the people who work for McDonald's hope that you will change your behavior and say, yeah, I'm going to, well, now we're going to go through the drive through but uh, yes, <laughs> we're going we're gonna to hit up Mickey D's. And propaganda in the early 20th century takes on a new sophistication, as advertising takes on a new sophistication with the invention of essentially the modern discipline of psychology and applying that to mass communication. I think one of the chapters I, I sent you refers to Bernays, um, mm -hmm. who was a psychologist and a theorist of this. And, and like many other people with an interest, uh, worked in the field of advertising and, and thinking about advertising. And so one of the interesting things about World War II in terms of communicating to the public is that both government and private industry have a generation of people who'd been working in mass advertising before. So they go from selling Coca-Cola and cigarettes, perhaps, to working for the government and trying to communicate about the war. So, I mean, in, in thinking about that, and I actually wrote down one of the Bernays quotes from that article um, that I found really interesting. And he wrote, the haphazard staging of emotional events without regard to their value as part of the whole campaign is a waste of effort. And that struck me for lots of reasons, in part because I was thinking about, you know, the traditional October surprise in that it's not really a surprise anymore. We're all sort of expecting that whatever the most damning information a campaign has about their competitor is going to drop in October because right. that's when it'll have the most impact. And so what's, what's interesting to me here is how the information that was necessary for people to get in World War II, because we're not talking about soldiers on the front lines right now. We're talking about the people who were sitting at home, who were working, who were trying to keep the country running in the absence of what at the time were the primary and sometimes sole breadwinners of the family, and who were the people who were at the time, the ones who were running factories and doing all of those jobs, everybody had to sort of step in and fill those jobs in new ways that led to very interesting historical things that happened after. But while they're doing this, they have to be given information so that they understand what they're doing and the importance of it, but also so that they're motivated to continue to do that. And that is a virtual impossibility to do if you are just flooded with all of the available information all at once. Yeah, yeah, it's, it's very interesting that the Office of War Information, which was the U.S. Uh, office in charge of kind of the messaging, had a lot of principles that they kind of early on agreed that they would like to communicate and communicate consistently because you have to communicate consistently. But one of them was that they never wanted the American people to feel lied to. 
And establishing that trust is extremely helpful. Now, I think it's, you know, it's just, it is what it is. Donald Trump is not FDR. I could, yes. So <laughs> we'll leave it there. <laughs> we'll leave it there. And so some of our federal communication has not been consistent up to this point, uh, which is unfortunate because I think we see with the different state governments, some governors are much better at trying to communicate very consistently than others. And that's just such an important point is to, to try to do that. Now, we do have some problems that are also inherent. The coronavirus is novel. So how it's going to behave and what's going to happen is not totally clear. But on the other hand, if we think about something like a war, well, what's going to happen isn't clear either. So you find your best principles and you try to boil them down to certain, certain things you want to communicate. You know, for example, one of the things that, you know, the Office of War Information had various categories of, of things they would ask for cinemas to try to, not cinemas, but filmmakers to try to communicate. For example, the nature of the enemy. You know, as we were talking about with Rick and the Nazis, what is it that I'm very concerned about? And so I have a, a poster here because posters were also important. And I'm going to send you a picture of this. Oh, uh, but I'm this so is, excited. This is part of the uh, National War Poster Competition that the Museum of Modern Art in the United States held for uh, war posters. And it's simply titled, This is the Enemy. Wow. And it has this picture. It's really quite graphically fascinating. It has this picture of uh, a sort of a, a Prussian officer type with one blue eye, and then his other eye is a monocle, and he's you know he's dressed in this Nazi um, uniform, but in the monocle is reflected. Again, I'll show it to you. <gasps> oh wow! It's a person hanging from yeah, yeah from a gallows, and of course this reflects oh. this reflects the Nazi brutality towards countries where they were occupied, and in, in sort of just cracking down on any Nazi behavior and murdering people. So it's a very efficient image. It's kind of chilling, but it moves you. And that's what's interesting. It's just one poster, but it tells a story. And you know, that has a connection to, to Jojo Rabbit and to sort of a critical moment in Jojo Rabbit. And so that imagery, I think is, you can still see it in, in something as, as modern as, you know, came out six months ago. And I'm not going to spoil Jojo Rabbit, but you know, <laughs> when, when people see it, they'll know. That is, that is fascinating. And, and when I first saw him, I, I didn't even see his blue eye. I just saw the big scary monocle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it draws and, and you right there. The graphic nature of these, I mean, this is what I'm saying in terms of these being very sophisticated pieces of advertising from very talented artists. There was also a lot of concern about public health in the Second World War. And again, some of these we might apply more directly or not. There's a big concern about sexually transmitted infections or venereal disease as known in that time. Um, this is kind of a famous poster as well. But again, the graphics are striking. So VD, <laughs> <laughs> and it has this picture of a skull with this florid orchid hat, lady hat. So it's this death head saying, hello, boyfriend, coming my way. Oh, um, Georgia O'Keefe would have a field day with that. I know, I know. <laughs> and then it gives you this little piece of information, um, you know, telling you that unless it's treated, those can result in syphilis and gonorrhea. It, it's very to the point, you know, that can cause blindness, insanity, paralysis, and premature death. So you don't want to do it. And the whole death image is <laughs> underlined by the skull. Very, um, very powerful, yeah. Yeah, and I mean, as a historian of gender, I can talk about this image for a long time, but from a public health perspective, you know, it, it's just an effective graphic. It gets out information, 
exactly what you need to know. And so those are some really important lessons we can learn from our messaging. Another one I might point out is that people need very specific information and very clear information. Yeah. Um, one criticism we can have of our current response that I wish we could do a little better is that social distancing is a very unclear term. Mm-hmm. That, that's a new term. No one's sure what it is. So they need much more specific advice. They need to know this doesn't mean that it's okay to get together in groups as long as you stay six feet apart. You know, you really shouldn't be getting together in groups for any purpose unless it's absolutely necessary. It doesn't mean that you can pick just one group of people to get together with. But from the term, I'm not sure I would understand that. So again, when I look at the messages from the Second World War, it's, it's very clear. You know, it's here's something we want to influence your attitude, and then here's the action. So I'd like to ask your advice. Because I'm not gonna I'm not gonna read your your article because I want people to see it and we're posting it in the in the show notes. But you have some very specific messaging that you want to give, and today and we're gonna do a podcast episode on this later. But today on social media, I have been dealing with people who are very confused about masks and whether or not they should be wearing them and whether or not they've been lied to or misled by the messaging that they've received thus far. And so what I would ask you is, what is your advice for those of us that are trying to effectively message that specific issue? So I would say, you know, some of the most helpful things are to come up with a short, snappy slogan related to it, and then to have no more than two or three points that you try to convey. And, you know, one piece of confusion for people, I think, is just, what is a mask? What is the difference between wearing a face covering and wearing PPE? Those are some really confusing issues. Why is a mask not effective if it's not, you know, or is it effective for some people or for some purpose? You know, again, communicate those in these really, really concrete ways. And of course, part of the issue is that, again, people are feeling very confused because it is a confusing situation. So that's what I would say is to try to boil it down to those two or three points and and something kind of snappy that they can remember. And always emphasize, you know, be as clear as possible. This is the best information we have now. Yeah. I mean, I think the part of the problem is there is also an issue in human psychology is that in the face of great uncertainty, we want to try everything we can. We are willing to try things that might not be the best thing for us. You know, you're going to, in addition to going to church, you might start lighting some voodoo candles around now. I mean, (laughs) in a spiritual sense, in a psychological sense, however you look at it. So, and I think perhaps as a, as a health educator, maybe one of the questions for you to ask is, what's the most important thing people need to know right now? I mean, they need to know, don't use pool chemicals. Don't try oh, to use pool chemicals. Where did you hear that one? <laughs> There's the same name as one of the malarial drugs has as a pool chemical and someone consumed that recently. And oh, that's it, right. Yeah, so, uh, but that's a good example of unclear messaging. The president said, here's these drugs that might work. Someone picks it up and was like, I've got some of this around. And, you know, that's really quite tragic in a way. Yeah. Um, so so those, are, those are some good principles, I think, to help. I think that connecting an action, a specific action, to the wider picture also really, really helps people. We're doing some of that with the whole stay at home, right? Yeah. <laughs> stay at home, sit on the couch. But here's another example of a poster. Mm. So this gives us um, oh. 
Keep I've seen that the, one before. Yeah, this is this is actually a Canadian poster. Keep these hands off, and it's these sort of claws with the uh, Nazi symbol and with a Japanese symbol on them, and this mother and baby being menaced. So that's that's the attitude, right? We want to feel concerned about this mother and baby. But then at the bottom of the poster, it says, buy war bonds. <laughs> so the connection is there. If you buy war bonds, you are helping to keep babies safe. Yep. So maybe we need to have some of that messaging. If you stay home, if you only go out every seven to 10 days for groceries, and people need specifics like that, seven yeah. to 10 days, you know, don't go out twice a week, go out seven to 10 days, then you're protecting babies. Leave your babies at home. Don't bring the kids to the supermarket if you can help it. Yeah. You know, leave them at home to protect your babies and other people's babies. I mean, that might sound really crass and crude, but it's remarkably effective. I think what's really interesting to me in, in sort of observing this is that we're, we are seeing in some ways a tragedy of the commons with the toilet paper and the yeast and the flour that is not available in markets right now because everybody keeps buying as much of it as they can find. But what's really interesting to me and the message that I am interested in finding a way to get across more effectively is maybe a very difficult one because it's not, it's not demanding concrete action, but it's the sense that and I associate this feeling with World War II, the sense that we are all in this together mm -hmm. and that we are all fighting this threat together. Mm -hmm. That even if you personally are the one who is sick or are the one, you know, for, for my listeners, I am in a high risk group, right? If you are the one who is at risk, it's not just my own actions that keep me safe. It's the actions of my neighbors and of the people that I am forced to interact with because I have no choice but to get groceries at some point. Yeah, and I think there too we have some um, we have some good examples. Let me see what I've, what I've got here. You know, in World War II, there's a big concern about information, and we actually have some concerns about information now too. It links what you're doing directly to other things. So here's one, and I'll send you this picture too. But loose talk may kill your comrades. You know, your speech could directly lead to something. Here is your pen an enemy weapon. So don't write down sensitive things. And I think our concern now is much more for spreading around misinformation. So I think it's a similar problem of communication, but we're not really worried about spies. We're worried though, that people are gonna pass around information on Facebook or Twitter that is non-verified, that is not helpful. So think twice before passing along that meme. And we do mean you, yes, you, you're not special. <laughs> no, I'm not. No, but I, that's sort of another issue is that I think sometimes people think, well, it's okay if I just do this one thing. And no, you're right. We're all in it together. Although I would add that guilt doesn't have to be the only weapon in the, in the repertoire. Um, one of the things I love about some of these World War II campaigns is they really do get that humor sometimes is better than guilt. This is a British poster. It's kind of hilarious. Okay, so it's careless talk costs lives. But these two people are sitting here gossiping. And it's really funny because the wallpaper, if you look carefully, it's Oh my God. <laughs> so it's little tiny cartoons of Hitler listening in. But really in a crisis, some humor can actually be effective. You know, guilt and drama and scary people menacing babies. Or, I mean, that, yeah, that's good. But 
keeping a little sense of humor can, can actually make it more memorable sometimes. I think I've got another British one. The British are really good at this. We're really good at this sort of little bit of humor. This one is about, it's actually relevant too, because it's about using food wisely, which in our current crisis, the better we use our food, the less you'll have to go out for groceries, Right. the more there will be for other people. But it says, let's see, better potluck with Churchill today than humble pie with Hitler tomorrow. <laughs> and uh, the potluck is Churchill's face and the pie is Hitler. So, but again, those, those sorts of things are memorable um, and helpful. So I think using a variety of different techniques, and like I said, it might seem strange to have a humorous thing in, in the midst of a crisis, but sometimes that's just what you need. Well, so speaking of Churchill, because in terms of my, my real World War II heroes, the incredibly problematic Churchill <laughs> happens to be one of them. And I actually have read many, many, many uh, essays and articles and, and a book even on him. And he was, I, I don't know any other word than problematic because it, he was incredibly problematic after World War II. <laughs> well, he, he was he's a racist and an imperialist, and he's an incredible misogynist. So yeah. We can, we can say those things, but he's an incredible communicator as well. And in that yeah. moment, his communication skills really were important. So, I mean, we can acknowledge he's a problem yeah. in many ways. <laughs> but the skill he had as a communicator was undoubtedly very important at that time. Yeah, so there there are two speeches of Churchill's that to me stand out as sort of iconic from the time and that we might think about how to use sort of similar communication or similar discussions to to convince people to sort of have that collective action. And the first one is his, their finest hour speech, mm-hmm. where mm-hmm. he, I, I listened to this in the British Museum uh, years ago, and it, it sent chills down my spine because by the end of it, I was willing to stand on the beach shoulder to shoulder with everybody else and die in order to preserve the nation or punch some Nazis, weren't you? Die fighting. Yeah, I was ready to punch some Nazis. Yes, <laughs> absolutely. I was gonna be Indiana Jones standing shoulder to shoulder with, with the Brits. But what's really interesting to me about that speech is that it is it, it uses this like light and dark metaphor imagery or this light and dark imagery to talk about Britain and to talk about her enemies but it also sort of leaves no room for doubt that people are going to die in order to fight this war, that we're not going to get out of this without casualties, and it might be the last war. Mm-hmm. It might be the end for us. And mm-hmm. speaking as someone who has been studying the potential impacts of pandemics and looking at sort of the rising death toll and every estimate that we have, you know, we're looking at in the United States alone, probably between 100 and 200,000 people are going to die. And Mm -hmm. those numbers, understandably, combined with sort of these weird fragmented messages that we're currently getting with the unknown, the terror of this unknown, because nobody can give you direct things because we don't know enough about this because it's a novel virus. And the speed with which it's all happening, I think understandably is scaring everybody and causing them to react in a way that is counterproductive even though I know they don't mean to. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. And, and you know, Churchill's speech, um, you're right, it communicates clearly, it communicates confidently, it draws on a lot of different British cultural touchstones, 
but it's also notes that there will be sacrifice. And I think that's a word that maybe we haven't heard as much. And perhaps it's embarrassing, particularly for those of us who are middle class. And I mean, I'm able to stay at home and work from home. You know, it's much more difficult for people who are doing some of the most dangerous jobs right now. Stocking groceries is a dangerous job, but such a necessary one. So I think the concept of do your bit another sort of British expression from the time. But it's a really great concept if we unpack it. Do your bit. You might not be able to do big heroic stuff, but you do your bit. And, you know, as psychologically we know, and again, of course, advertisers know, and all these people who work in propaganda know and messaging, sometimes it can feel overwhelming. And as you say, people are terrified and they're depressed, you know, people who struggle with mental health. Breaking things down into bits actually is a helpful strategy, right? So connecting things like, well, today I'm gonna to find a good recipe to use these dried beans, you know? Great, you're doing your bit. If you use more dried beans, you won't have to go to the store as much. And, and that's the sort of thing that I think, again, we can communicate to each other as citizens and try to reinforce positively. Like when you see someone, when someone posts on Facebook that they learn to make bread, say, hey, Good for you. You're doing your bit. Uh, you learned to bake bread, Taylor. You said you did your first French bread. Good I for did. you. Yeah. Did your bit. Okay. Good for you. <laughs> and, and I think that's that's helpful. I mean, one of the most difficult things here is that we have to change some very fundamental behaviors and attitudes. So again, I'm a historian. Let's go back to World War II and see what sorts of things that they have to change. One of them would be gender talking about gender roles, you know, and I know we've talked about this before, but it's hard for us to imagine that having all of these women working in heavy industry, not just industry, because women are, we're already working in large numbers in different industry, but working in heavy industry, doing traditionally masculine jobs, that was a huge shift to ask of people in the different countries. Um, having these large numbers of uniformed women, you know, was caused actually a moral panic. In the Second World War, in both the US and the UK, there was a belief that women in uniform were probably prostitutes. And rumors went around about the real reason that we have women in the Women's Auxiliary Corps of the Army. And I think in Britain, the nickname for women in uniform, uh, the crude one is officers ground sheets. You know, I mean, it's pretty bad. Because people fundamentally, they were being asked to make this major shift in our notions of gender. And that's just not easy to do. Gender is a real basic in, in most societies. So, you know, what today, we actually are having some major shifts in, in gender roles or some challenges in gender roles. And you and I have talked about this before, but women still shoulder the massive burden of things that we need to do in this crisis, cooking, cleaning, childcare. And now suddenly everyone's at home with kids. Everyone's having to clean very carefully and cook a lot more. You know, some of those groceries are hoarding, but I'll also point out that some of the reason people are buying a lot of groceries is they're eating all their meals at home, not just, I mean, you know, no lunches at work. So what if we had a campaign like the one in World War II to get women in the factories? What if we had a campaign to get men into the kitchens? Oh, I like if you, that. If you're in a household, you know, a male-female partnership household, especially if you have children, um, what can we do to get the men of America to look around and say, okay, actually, we're both working at home now. What can I do to do a little extra? Because if you have a wife who is, you know, gets sick, God forbid, and she's not able to do some of those things, how will they be done? Men, do you know how to boil the water? 
And I'm not saying that to, to put down men or I think, you know, plenty of men do some household labor already, but let's take a real look and make sure that, you know, we're really distributing that load as equally as we can. That would be a big shift in behavior related to gender, but it would be super helpful in this crisis. And again, men, you're helping to save your country by learning to cook, by I mean, cleaning the bathroom toilet. Good for you. Yes. And, and you know, the other thing that's interesting and in the, the difference between now and, and World War II, although I can't get the image of Rosie the Riveter out of my head now, is that women are often working. And in fact, in the healthcare industry, women, it's 72% women now. Yeah. Um, women yeah. are the vast majority of nurses. It's actually called pink collar jobs. Yes. Is the term that I've heard used. And what's really interesting to me, uh, and this ties into the second of, of problematic Churchill's speeches, the speech itself was not problematic, is, is the never have so many owed so much to so few. Mm -hmm. and, and this is sort of the, the other side of that, which is which voices do we prioritize listening to and how do we shift our focus to those few? right? That are not most of us. I don't work directly in clinical health, but there are nurses, doctors, veterinarians. California actually just sent out a call to ask anybody with any medical expertise, including EMTs, and I saw veterinarians. I'll have to verify that later, but to join basically a, a volunteer core because mm -hmm. veterinarians know how to innovate. They know how to take <clears throat> care of patients. And so in the middle of this crisis, if necessary, they could essentially be a reserve, a ready reserve to be called up. And how do we communicate the message that it's no longer the soldiers that you need to be focused on, although we could go into a long story about how, how much we will owe to them by the end of this, but how do you focus on, we absolutely have to do everything we can to support our healthcare workers and to protect them because you lose one healthcare worker you lose the ability to care for 30 plus patients a day. Yes. And I think, you know, again, we can think about some of the imagery of the Second World War that asked people to connect their ordinary actions to a soldier or a sailor, Marine, Air Force, whatever. So things like there's a poster and I don't have this one actually with me. Maybe we can look it up. There's a poster where uh, we've got a smiling American GI. He's drinking a cup of coffee and he says, do with less so he'll have enough. You know, and that's you are helping the soldier. There's some other examples of things like um, showing a woman uh, wearing a, you know, her whack uniform and she's at home in stateside, you know, doing probably administrative support work. But then there's a soldier in a, a male soldier in a uniform fighting overseas because every non-combat job that a woman can take means another man can go overseas. And those kinds of connections to the people at the front line. So it might not seem important that you keep your kids home and you don't do a play date, but every day you and your kids stay home is another healthcare provider who can maybe be a little bit healthier. You know, every day that you manage to not go to the grocery store, that you stretch your food budget so that you don't have to go, but maybe once every 10 days or so, that's another healthcare worker who's protected, who has a fighting chance. I think those kind of emotional appeals are very important. And and again, sometimes it's fundamental behaviors and you're, you're trying to unpack. You know, here in the South, Taylor, you know, I'm here in Georgia and church is so important to people's lives. 
You know, that, that's a major part of identity. Well, for many people in the United States, their religious organization, whatever it is, a synagogue, if you go to a mosque, whatever your community. But particularly in, uh, I think in the American South, there's just something really ingrained about going to church. And it's been hard to convince churches to close, to not have real in-person services. But if you can say, you know, this is a patriotic act, you staying home on Sunday and watching your church on YouTube, you are helping a doctor, you're helping a nurse, you are helping an EMT, you are helping all of these people. That really appeals to, to something, that appeals to a sense of community. You're still part of a community. As you were saying earlier, we're apart, but we are a community. And I think there's a way to make that messaging work. Now, I can't let you go without asking you how Wonder Woman would respond to this crisis. What would Wonder Woman do is, I mean, I think yes. we can all ask ourselves. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, Wonder Woman's a really interesting example. Uh, and, and there's a connection to World War II here. So let me talk about the Wonder Woman of World War II. Let me talk about Wonder Woman as uh, a character of propaganda in some extent. You know, her inventor was a psychologist and William Moulton Marston and his mentor at Harvard was a guy called Hugo Munsterberg, who was very interested in both advertising and popular culture. So it's not surprising that Marston thought that you could use something like children's culture to promote a new message. And, and originally his, his idea was about promoting the leadership of women, convincing children that you don't have to be this sort of blood-curdlingly masculine, in his phrase, hero to be a hero, that traditionally feminine values of love and caring were just as important as physical strength. And again, to give us the World War II backdrop, remember he's writing this when Mussolini and Hitler are running all over Europe, when there's war in Asia, when he sees societies that, that are fascist, that glorify strength over humanity. So Wonder Woman, how would she respond to a crisis like this? What do we, what do we see? Well, one thing about Wonder Woman is that in the Second World War, although adults read the comic, she spoke to children, especially. And in a lot of the books, there's a message for children, and children are a part of the war effort. I think that's very powerful to remember that even the youngest members of our society are contributing something here. And I note, I've been watching Justin Trudeau's news conferences, the Prime Minister of Canada, and I've really appreciated that on more than one occasion, he's spoken directly to children and said, I know this is hard. I know you're going through a difficult time, not able to see your friends. He speaks about his kids, says they see the same thing, but then he thanks them and, and tells them your sacrifice makes a difference to everyone. And I think that's a very Wonder Woman kind of message when I think about some of that messaging from the Second World War. You know, if you save scrap metal, uh, if you help recycle, if you help sell war bonds, you are doing something really important. And so communicating with all members of society, but including our children and, and helping them understand, not only do I think that will help us win this war, but it's kind of a good message for the next generation, isn't it? You know, to make them feel that they are part of something historic, because they are. I think they'll certainly be better cooks than we were at their age. <laughs> well, I don't know about you, Taylor. I'm, I'm the next, remember, I'm, I'm, the, uh, I'm the generation that we're the latchkey kids, so... We're, oh, we're yeah. great at this. We're coming home and making our macaroni and cheese and watching television, you know. But uh, all joking aside, World War II did have a profound effect on its its children. Um, and I think I mentioned to you earlier that my parents were children of World War II. And as I've become a historian and learn more about the war, I start to understand why they're really good at recycling. You know, they're really good at um, some of these actions, which when they were children were 
pitch to them as things you're doing to help the country. And so uh, it could have lasting effects. It could be, I told my students they could be the next greatest generation because of how they respond to this crisis. Absolutely. I, I, I do think that I always try to end, despite the fact that I, I run an infectious disease podcast that talks about um, existential threats to our health all the time. I do try to end on on sort of hopeful or happy notes. Uh, and in the face of a global pandemic, that's not always easy to find. And I, I think what I find most hopeful or perhaps helpful about this is that if we look at it through this lens that you have so helpfully provided, it's a connection to our own past and to our own families mm -hmm. and to the sacrifices that they made because men who had, you know, 16 year old, 18 year old sons when they were at the, on the front in World War II did get to see their children graduate. And that is something that I think a lot of people today can relate to. My brother and sister just turned 21 last week, this week, two days ago. And this was not, this was not the 21st birthday I had envisioned for them. Uh, they were, they were born when I was 15. So I've just outed my own age, but you know, I mean, for me, it's, it's thinking about sort of their entire lives and, and where I thought they would be and what I thought we'd be able to do on their 21st birthday, you know, a text or a phone call. And, uh, you know, I can't even physically send you things cause I don't want, I don't want to add that burden. It, you know, it's not what we plan for people who are losing the things that they're, they're missing out on, you know, family trips or just vacations or graduations or these rites of passage there is a genuine grief to that loss that is super valid. But I think if we can reframe our thinking into understanding that this is, yes, a loss, but also a sacrifice. Yes, yes. For our future and, and so that, you know, our neighbor can, can do those things in the future, I think is maybe a more hopeful note to leave this on. Well, you know, there's a popular song from wartime called I'll Be Seeing You, you know, I'll be seeing you in all the old familiar places, reflecting that people were separated, that they were not able to be together, but expressing a hope that we will be together in future. You know, I'm, I'm, we're imagining it now, but I'll be seeing you. And I think that's a good way of thinking of it. If we remind ourselves that the more we do our bit, the sooner it's over, the more effectively we can respond, and we'll be seeing each other again. We will. So at the end of this, when all this is over, I would like to invite you to come up to DC and we can walk through the American History Museum together. Woohoo! And, uh, <laughs> and we can we can explore my favorite thing in that entire museum is the the still from what's opera dock that they have on the ground floor. <laughs> <laughs> it's my favorite thing in the whole museum. It's a tiny little pencil drawing, but I love it. And then I want to see that museum through a historian's eyes. Well, it's a date, Taylor. So I think I'm going to leave you with, I will be seeing you. And I'll be seeing you.
The PDR podcast is written and hosted by Taylor Winkleman. Edited and produced by Taylor Winkleman and Jessica Smarker. I'll Be Seeing You, performed by Shields Green. Music by Sammy Fain. Lyrics by Irving Cahill. Stock media for this episode provided by Pond5. Links to the media referenced in the show can be found in the show notes and on our website, ghsanextgen.wixsite.com slash home slash podcast. You can like, listen, and subscribe on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Radio Public, Breaker, Anchor, Overcast, and Pocket Casts. Follow us on Twitter at NextGenGHS. If you are inspired to create some art related to this episode's topic, please slide on into our DMs and let us work with you on it. We will be showcasing that art on our Twitter account and our website. There is also an open call for coronavirus-related art at Amplifier.org. Link in the show notes. Stay safe, stay healthy, and stay home if you can. Until next time.